Good morning, everyone, uh, on this Sunday morning. Uh, this is your pastor, Lars Hammer, and I'm uh, coming to you via the wonders of the Internet. Uh, I know, again, because of the coronavirus outbreak, we're trying to find alternate ways to do worship, alternate ways to stay in touch with our faith. I'm still working on a lot of this, and I'm hoping to have some more structured events or resources uh, planned. I'm hoping to be able to have some things for kids, some materials that you can do at home with your kids because we don't have kids chat. I'm hoping to be able to send home some Bible study materials that we can send out through email and post on our church media. I'll admit, for me, most of this week has been much more mundane, uh, taking care of business kind of things, uh, finances and staffing and what do we close and what do we do. Uh, I'm hoping next week, uh, this coming week, that we'll have some more time to begin to uh, find new ways to live out as being a church, as we're all apart. Uh, again, things at the church are closed this week and next week as well, uh, so everything is for sure off through the end of March. Our council will be revisiting the issue at the end of March, and we will let you all know. It does not appear at this time that the virus is looking like it's going to subside. It looks like it probably will continue, but we will let you know for certain. So as I've said, make sure you check your emails. It really is the best way for us to communicate and to get things out to everyone. If you or someone you know isn't getting the emails, uh, just let us know. Our secretary, Nikki Miller, does come in from time to time and check things and update these things. So um, so, and that's about all I have in terms of announcements because so much of our programming is closed and so much is up in the air. But again, I hope you're all doing the best and staying safe. Uh, I hope everyone's not uh, getting cra- going crazy and getting in each other's hair. Uh, I have my whole family at home and we're all in our house and we're getting to have lots of family bonding time. And uh, I don't know uh, if that's as exciting for you as it is for me. But um, so anyways, I... Uh, I'll be all that. So, uh, today's sermon, today's message, uh, we're going to do from the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter. An idea that I have that I might recommend. If you're at home listening to this, you could make this kind of like an old, one of those fireside chat things or old radio programs that people used to do before there was TV and they'd sit around and they could listen in to, you know, whatever the show was. And, um, I'd encourage you, too, to bring out your Bibles and have those near you so you can read along. Today's Bible lesson is long, and it would be helpful, I think, if you had it in front of you, you could see it and um, take a look at that. This is also a good opportunity for, as your family to get together, and you could also maybe ask some questions of each other as you reflect on the passage and on the sermon. And you could ask yourself some questions about it, get some reactions, a way to make it a little bit more interactive and involved for you. And um, so you can think of that as maybe making your own little liturgical space on this Sunday morning. So with that said, uh, I'm going to begin. I am going to read the entire passage for today. It is no less than 41 verses. Uh, You can fast forward if you want. I thought I'd read it for those who are maybe... Maybe you're in your car and you're driving to wherever. Uh, This way you can hear it verbally. But again, feel free to jump over if you want. But I'm going to read the whole thing because this story in John, like a lot of these stories in the Gospel of John, 
they're fairly long, but you got to read the whole thing to get all of it. It doesn't, it doesn't come apart easily. So, here we go. John 9, starting at verse 1. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. Jesus said to them, He put mud on my eyes. I'm sorry, the man said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. For the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opens my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely of sins, and you are trying to teach us? They drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Here ends our reading of the gospel. As I've uh, probably mentioned the last time, I've been walking through the gospel of John during this Lenten season when a lot of these particularly long Bible passages come up in the lectionary. This one comes from a world that uh, we modern, scientific, secular people often struggle to understand. And yet, I think the kind of thinking in this passage is actually still fairly popular in a lot of our world. And that is that it connects disability and illness to sin. If you are blind or have some other permanent disability. The belief was that somehow God was punishing you for a sin that you or your parents did. This isn't a belief that's in the Bible. Uh, There's no passage that says this, but that didn't stop it from becoming a common belief. I mean, you have to think about it. Why else would someone be born that way? If you don't understand genetics and DNA, and you believe that God personally, literally makes everyone exactly as they are, then you either have to believe that God is just cruel to some people for no reason, or that there is a good reason and that people deserve it. But then you got to ask, how can a baby do anything wrong to deserve a punishment? Well, it must be the parents. They must have done it. So some cultures then, well, they'll even take this back generations. It could have been your, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grand-uncle. And unless your family tree is full of perfect people, the system always works because there's always that one relative that can be blamed for whatever is going on. So it, it explained things in a way, even though, like I said, it's not in the Bible. But along comes this man who's been blind from birth and this group of Pharisees is trying to catch Jesus so they ask him who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind. So Jesus either supports the idea of disability as a punishment which again is not in the Bible or he says the guy did something as a baby or in the womb which is ridiculous and they got They got Jesus. They got him. It's a trick question. And Jesus just throws the whole debate out. It was neither. 
He just tells the guy to go put mud on his face and be healed. And it worked. Why exactly the mud? We're never explained. Uh, there are some. Uh, there, there was a belief out there that that could work. Uh, but the passage doesn't give us an answer. It just says that's what Jesus did. So he tells him to go put the mud on his face and be healed. But Jesus, in a sense, he defies the whole system, and he just heals the guy. And then, as in every other passage, there's an obligatory brouhaha over Jesus supposedly disregarding the laws and going soft on sin. You know, I, this, this passage always comes to me, I, I think about this debate, uh, as a parent of a son with Down syndrome, because it's one of those things they tar- start telling you as soon as you find out. That, and they tell you, it's not your fault. Uh, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. It isn't because you didn't eat this or that. Uh, it just happens. And there's really no way to prevent it, and there's no cure. That's that. It just is what it is. But why do they need to tell you? I mean, why, why does a doctor feel like he has to tell you this? Well, because we're conditioned to think that there might have been a connection. You know, because there are situations where the behavior of a mother or father can affect a child's development. And so when something happens, we can worry and, and start feeling guilty. When my son was born, uh, about this is nine years ago now, uh, he was born, we, I think we had him barely a day, uh, and I picked him up and he had some blue tinge on his fingertips and on his toes, and I didn't know if that was normal, so we called in the nurse who came in and brought another nurse, and then there was a uh, massive instantaneous freakout, and they swiped uh, the baby out of my arms and dragged him off to the NICU, the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Uh, And they put him there, uh, where he ended up having to be for a month. A month. Uh, And uh, so I got to go into the NICU, got to spend a lot of time there, not nearly as much as my wife. But so there we were in this NICU, and it's, it's not like it used to be. In the old days, I remember when my sister was born, my parents walked me by. You could look inside the, the nursery and they had windows and you could see the babies. Uh, now it's all, it's all shaded off and you've got to get a pass to get in. It's high security. But you go in there and for the most part, it's just uh, babies and warmers and moms in rocking chairs, uh, except off in the corner is this special isolation room. And it's not a very large room, uh, but it's got no lights, or very, very dim lights. Uh, there's no sound in there. It's fairly insulated. But you could hear coming out of that this baby uh, screaming just the most horrifying, blood-curdling, uh, gut-wrenching screams. That I, The worst thing I've ever heard in my life uh, was the sound of this baby. And it, it was a baby going through withdrawal. Uh, the mom had admitted... They after, I mean, they tested the baby, but the mom fessed up to using a whole, it was just a whole catalog of drugs. She had a whole pharmacy in her of various uh, illegal drugs. And uh, so they gave the baby, they were administering to the baby methadone. Of course, they couldn't tell me this. This was just what I overheard. Uh, but they were administering methadone, and the methadone wasn't working. It uh, wasn't calming the baby. It wasn't having any effect. The baby had a tolerance to it. 
Uh, it had just been born, and it already had a tolerance. So then they got on the phone and uh, asked the mom, and she had initially said, well, you know, I, I, I had a little, I had a couple pills here or there. And, and then they kept uh, pushing her, and eventually she admitted, oh, yeah, she had, had used uh, opioids as well and painkillers. So the baby was born uh, also resistant to painkillers. And so now the hospital was out of its toolbox. All its drugs in its toolbox wouldn't work. Uh, and, uh, and even the painkillers couldn't relieve the pain, and they, all they could do was try to soothe this poor baby who's just sitting there screaming. Well, uh, so, you know, you, you try to look at uh, a situation like this as, as a tragedy, you know, this is this is a lose lose. This is a situation of a mother who's very much uh, in the throes of a disease. You know, in a sense, she is a victim uh, as a drug addict, and clearly, she was a very chronic drug addict. Uh, and then there's the other victim, who's the baby, and he's the victim of the disease that he didn't do anything about. And then there's a system that makes drugs easy to get and treatment hard and expensive, and. Uh, and so you think to yourself, all right, you know, I hear the scream, it, it, it makes me mad, but I'm going to step back. And then you overhear this phone conversation going on. The mom, who can't afford treatment, uh, who can't afford a counselor, gets a, can somehow afford a lawyer, and the mom and her lawyer are calling into the NICU demanding her rights, her rights, her rights to see her baby, her rights to get access, uh, the injustice of the system not allowing her to have the baby. And you're overhearing this while the baby's having this horrible cry and you've got this mother who's unrepentant and smug and indignant and she's inflicted this on her child and she's acting like the victim in all of this. CPS, of course, was involved. I never saw the mom. That's all I ever knew, and all I ever heard was what I overheard. So I'm sure there's a part of the story I didn't get. And, but what I know is you know, this happens several hundred times in Tucson every year. And it's cases like this that test your sympathy, you know, that, that make you more amenable to talking about punishments, that make you, you know, say, yeah, I know there's forgiveness, but... Man, I heard that cry. And it makes you see that sometimes the sins of the parents are inflicted on the children. That sometimes we do suffer for the things our parents or our families or our ancestors do. But what now? The ideal situation, you know, if I had the power, would have been to have just rubbed the mud on the baby and made the drugs go away. And I would have even done the same to that smug, indignant uh, mother. You know, she needs treatment. She needed treatment. It was nine years ago. I hope she got it. And in the long run, I know that treatment is the more Christian way, even if she is utterly unrepentant. But that doesn't make it easy. We struggle with the idea in our culture of sin. I think we struggle with it a lot. We think we're so evolved and enlightened that we know better than to talk about things in those mystical terms. We think that people are just generally good and they're trying to get by in an unjust world and sometimes, you know, we do harmful things, but it's probably just because of some 
psychological weakness or a bad family or an unjust society. So a lot of time you'll hear people say, there really isn't sin. There's just missing the mark or not being perfect, someone told me once. And then you see some of the things in the world and you start to wonder if there is something deeper at work. In the Old Testament, sin is not just things you do, but a state you're in after you do them. When you do the sin, you fall out of God's favor, and then you're in a state of sin. So you go and steal your neighbor's horse. We'll pick an Old Testament kind of thing. You stole his horse. You committed a sin, but now you are in a state of sin. You are in disfavor with God. And so in that, while you are in that state, you are treated as unpure and unclean. There's a degree of uh, ostracism from the community uh, where people can't touch you. There's limited interaction with you. You're treated as a lower class until you make amends and you atone for your sins. And what you would do often is you would go to the temple or to the tabernacle and you would make your sacrifice uh, and you'd give a prayer uh, of a sort of an apology to God and the priest would oversee all this and would certify you as clean. And then at that point, the sin, the state of sin was gone and you could go on with your life. The, the best analogy I can think of for this is, you know, when you... You come home late from your after-work party with the guys, you know, and, and, and by late, I mean you were supposed to be home by 8, and you're back at like 1 or 2 in the morning, and, and, and it's a work night, and, and, and you were safe. You know, you got an Uber, and you left the car back at the tavern, and now you're home, and your wife is ticked because you missed the school play, and you're going to have to call in sick tomorrow to work, which means you're going to lose income, and she's going to have to drive your butt back to the bar to pick up the car after you get through with this hangover. And so what does she do? At least in the cliche, she kicks you off the bed and makes you sleep on the couch. You've been isolated. You are in a state of sin, also known as the doghouse. And it's not something magical, It's not a mysterious blue gas that covers you or something. It's about being out of favor. And you know you'll have to do something to atone for it later. Make some apologies, do some extra chores, whatever. And if your marriage is going to last, the sin must be wiped away and not held against you forever, or it's not going to work. Because if you're always going to be the guy who did that X, Y, Z, or if you're going to always be the wife who cheated or strayed, if that sin that you committed is not able to be wiped away, then the two of you will never be, then you'll always be having a struggle. It'll be very, very hard on your marriage, very hard to make it. And you know it's gone in a sense, the situation's gone from a thing you did to who you are when the sin isn't forgiven. If you go from Jim, the good guy who screwed up, to Jim, the screw-up, 
then the sin has become who you are. It becomes an identity, a label. It becomes your person, your being. And it gets you written off for it. The secular world scoffs at the idea that sin can be some sort of innate thing, that it's a a permanent state, that it's somehow how we are made. But then it does exactly what the ancients used to do. It labels people as irredeemable and unfixable sinners. It just doesn't use the word sin. It uses words like criminal or gangbanger or delinquent. It uses words like sociopath or damaged. And instead of isolating people with purity laws or, I guess, what, giving them a scarlet letter or something, making them wear weird clothes, we put their names on registries and we post it on the Internet for everyone everywhere forever and always to see. Once a gang lord, always a gang lord. Once an offender, always an offender. And it doesn't matter if you did your time, if you changed, if you've never reoffended again. You have the label with you and a large segment of the population will never hire you or rent to you because you're not, you know, Jim, the guy who committed a crime. You are a criminal. Jesus, who committed crimes, this man or his parents, that he became a criminal. Jesus, who acted irresponsibly, this man or his parents, that he turned into a juvenile delinquent. And then I go, yeah, maybe we haven't evolved that much. We just use technology to ostracize and brand people as being forever in a state of sin. We use psychological terms to justify it. It's just how they're wired and they can't change and they'll always do it and they can never be trusted. It's just part of who they are. So sin becomes genetic or now it's neurological. And if that's the case, then there's nothing you can do to atone and no way to get clean, no way to be allowed back in the community, no way to start over. You're like the guy who never gets off the couch except your couch is a seedy hotel down by the airport full of bed bugs and crack pipes on the stoop. But, and this is key, but we might make an allowance for you and feel a little sorry for you if it was because your parents made you that way. If your family was horrible and your neighborhood was violent, we might say you didn't get a fair shake and so maybe you should be given a second chance. But if you went stealing cars because you thought it was cool and you laughed about it at trial and did it again, yeah, then you're a car thief for life. You're a sinner. Who was born a criminal? This man or his parents that he did these things? Well, Neither, says Jesus. Neither. So what do we take away from all this? This passage is good news to anyone who's been told that their illness or their disability is somehow a punishment from God. Jesus never buys that for two seconds. So yeah, put away the guilt. It's not you. And it's also not up to us to get into the blame game. If we follow Jesus' example 
and we have the power to heal someone, we just do it. If you have the power to lift someone out of their bad situation, you just do it. If you can make it better, you make it better, and you don't worry about whether the person is deserving of being better or not. You don't worry about if I help them out, am I helping them get get away with it or uh, lessening the punishment. Yes, people do stupid things, and those stupid things come with bad consequences, and they suffer for it, but they're still children of God. Drug addicts do horrendous things to feed the habit, but they are children of God who deserve to experience a clean and sober life. They deserve to be loved and wanted and cared for, even if there are times when it is very, very hard to do so. Criminals are children of God who deserve a second chance. And yeah, that doesn't mean you let repeat offenders do anything. I mean, I think we can be smart enough to understand the difference between a chronic offender and a kid who's just being a punk. And I think this is always the bigger piece for Jesus, is that when Jesus is forgiving sins and healing people, he's restoring their status in the community. If your sins are forgiven, then you can mingle with people. You can be touched. You can be invited to social gatherings. Forgiveness got you out of the isolation. And we may not be able to cure a lot of things, as we're learning right now, but we can choose to include people in our social circles, regardless of their past. We may not be able to change whatever the physical issue is, but we can change how we treat them. And sometimes healing may not look like a cure, as much as I wish I could run around and just dole out cures, but sometimes healing looks like being brought back in from the doghouse, being brought back in and not being called a sinner, to have that label from you removed in someone's eyes, to be valued as something more. We can, all of us, remove the mark of sin that we put on others and welcome others back, as Jesus did. Amen.